Well, to start with this morning, as I begin to share from the Word, I wanted to talk about a car. This is a car that was in my family growing up. It was a Mercury Grand Marquis, a station wagon. Yes, my family went through two of these, actually. They both got wrecked. I was in the car both times they got wrecked. And I want to tell you about the first time the first Grand Marquis got wrecked. So I was uh, in elementary school at the time. Um, uh, I, I'm the youngest of four. And uh, at, when uh, on this particular day, I was being picked up from school. My other siblings had been picked up. My sister and brother were in the car with me. And they were in the, the, the second row of seats. And I remember my sister was to my right and my brother was to my left. And if you know anything about these station wagons, they are huge inside. Huge. And for an eight year old, it's like, a, it's like a playground on wheels. So I was not interested in putting on my seatbelt. So there I was, we were heading out from school, and uh, my sister was busy trying to get me to put my seatbelt on. So I'm just squirming and wiggling around in the back seat. And uh, um, somehow, in the middle of all that, my mom managed to fall asleep. So she fell asleep, and uh, uh, the particular road that we were on, curved around a, a, a median, and she drifted right into that median, into the curb, and since I didn't have my seatbelt on, I went flying right into the console. I was fine. Don't worry. I was okay. As a matter of fact, at the end of the day, I got milk and cookies out of the deal, and uh, my mom went to the hospital for whiplash, so everything was fine. Um, but that experience of flying out of the seat in the car was one to remember, and it has some bearing on the scripture we're going to read today. We are in Psalm 139. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been exploring and just just really luxuriating in some of the most beautiful poetic scripture there is in the Bible. Scripture about God and his, his power, how all-powerful he is, how he is present everywhere. How he knows everything. He's just, and in and, and, and all of that, he is intimately acquainted with our thoughts. He's intimately acquainted with even us as people and our creation. And wherever we go, he is too. And so we've been luxuriating and basking in that. And then we come to the scripture we're going to read today. And for many of us, it feels like a car wreck. It feels like, we get thrown forward and we're just not sure where is this scripture coming from. Let's read that. I want to see if you feel like that, if you've not read this before, if you understand what I'm talking about here. So Psalm 139, beginning in verse 17. David the psalmist says to us, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Here's where that left turn happens. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father God, this morning, this word to us seems like a bitter pill. 
It seems bitter to our ears. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make it nourishment to our souls. Help us to feast upon it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, David, why do you have to harsh my vibe like that? Why do you got to take this left turn? It's, it's really kind of amusing even how, how much of a shocking change in the tone of the psalm this takes. I remember doing a memorial one time, and uh, I was working with this woman. It was a memorial for her father, and she mentioned to me, you know, Psalm 139 was a psalm that my father loved. But you can leave that last little bit out. And I said, yeah, I'm reading you there. I kind of get where you're going there. So, and that's maybe how we feel, you know. Why don't we just skip this piece? Because it's a little hard to digest. It's a little hard to understand what's going on here. But let me assure you, God was not asleep at the wheel when he inspired David to write this. There was an intention for this. There's something for us to learn here. And we can actually see that. If you're paying close attention to the psalm, you see from a 30,000-foot view what's going on. That first bit, the, the last three weeks that we've been exploring, we see the theme as what, God's care for us. God cares for us. And we've been, we've been living in that and understanding that and feeling that really well. But we see a shift happening in verse 17. The shift is that David is talking, he, he changes from God caring for us to David caring for God. David begins to talk about how he cares for God. And he talks about this by, by exploring what it means to think about what God is thinking. He, he says, I'm thinking about your thoughts, God. They're, your thoughts are so many. They're hard to comprehend what you are thinking. And, and if I try and count them, I'm going to fall asleep, he says in, in poetic language. If I just, I'm going to fall asleep while trying to count your thoughts. And then when I wake up, there's still more thoughts to count. And that's where he begins to talk about his care for what God cares about. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here and think about that. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered what God thinks about? What he's concerned about? You know, uh, you may have experienced this if you have a significant other. Sometimes when I'm on the road and I'm driving with my wife, uh, I, you know, I'll turn to her and I'll notice that she's quiet. Now for Megan, you know this significant because Megan is a verbal processor. So she thinks out loud. And uh, when she's quiet, I know she's really thinking. She's got the deep thoughts going on. And because I care about Megan, because I want to know her more, I'll ask her and say, what are you thinking? Now let's just imagine that you're on a car ride with God. You're cruising around in your Mercury Grand Marquis, and uh, God's driving because he's a better driver by far. And you turn, and you see that he's thinking. And so you ask God, what are you thinking, God? God turns to you, and he says something like this. Son, daughter, you know that I love you. You know that I care about the most intimate details of your life. That wherever you go, I go. That I created you, specifically. That I love life. That's who I am. But there are people who oppose me, who are against life, who are murderers. They are my enemies, and I hate them. 
Now, before you say, God would never say that he hates people. Before you say that, you should read a little bit more in the Scripture. Because Scripture has a lot to say about what God hates. It actually does. It has a lot to say about what God hates. One of the most prominent verses about this is actually in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. Let's read that now. I actually prefer the New Living Translation. I think that's on your screens. If you don't mind popping that up. Here we go. So this is what Proverbs 6 says about what God hates. It says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Continuing on. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Now you read that and you say, okay, those are things that God hates. Does he have to hate them? Does that have to be the word that he uses? But remember, we've just explored that God is one who knows everything, who is everywhere. He sees it all. He is intimately acquainted with the details of this world. So to God, a lie is not just a lie. When God hears a lie... He sees the effects of that perversion of truth cascading throughout our lives. He sees the damage that that lie does to its fullest. So pride to God is not just pride because God sees the impact that it has when we lift ourselves over another person. When we count them as less than ourselves, he sees the destructive influence of that and because he is God he sees every murder he sees every conflict he sees every fight that we have and he feels it keenly he feels how it perverts justice how it destroys life and so hate is not an inappropriate word for that As a matter of fact, I wonder if hate really conveys what God must feel about the things that destroy life in our world. So when we explore what God hates, I think what's really important to see is that hate in God's economy is really the flip side of his love. Imagine this. Imagine that I'm a father. I have a son. His name's Reed. He's almost three years old. And imagine that I received news that Reed was abused. I hardly even want to hypothesize about it. It's a horrific thing to consider. But imagine that I received that news, that he was abused. What do you think, as, as his father, my first reaction would be naturally? Probably anger. And you would not think that abnormal. For me, as Reed's father... If I were to learn that this had happened to him, to be angry, you would not think it normal at all. As a matter of fact, if I were to just shrug it off, you would begin to wonder what kind of relationship I had with my son. You would begin to question my love if I did not have some sort of strong emotion like anger. Because as his father, I desire justice for my son. I desire that wrong 
be made right. And if I, in my own imperfect sense of love, in my own imperfect sense of justice, would feel this, why would we not expect that of God in his perfect love, in his perfect righteousness? So we see that for God, his hate is really the flip side of his love. You know, when we say that, we say, God is love, God is love, and it's so true. But we recognize that we don't live in a utopia yet. That there is wrong in our world. That there is evil in our world. And how do we expect God to respond to that? So when we see that he hates these things, we should be assured that God loves us. Loves us so much that he actually sees the evil in our world and he cares about it. He cares about it. So yes, God's hate is the flip side of his love. And were we not to see the reaction that God has to evil, even in our own lives, we would have to suspect his love. But we can have full confidence in his love because he hates the very things that destroy life. So then come back to our imaginary car conversation with God. And you've just heard him say that he has enemies And he hates the people who perpetrate evil. And I wonder, what should you respond? How should you respond to that? But imagine you'd had a similar conversation with your significant other, with your child, with your best friend. And they had told you that there were people who wanted to harm them. People who were opposed to them, who were opposed to goodness. How would you respond to them? You would at least want to understand. But maybe you would want to align with them. Maybe you would want to hate the things that they hate. So now we begin to understand where David is coming from in this psalm. Now we begin to understand what he's trying to say. Because in the psalm, he's explored in the first part how God is loyal to us. But he is changing to say how he, David, is loyal to God. How he is loyal to God. And so he expresses it in this way of saying, the people that hate you, I hate them. And what's really fascinating about this, some of the cultural context of his time, is that actually uh, archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions that resemble this because they're treaties from kings to, to their, uh, their, their vassals. And they sound like verses 21 and 22, actually, very similar. And I think we have one up on the screen at one of these inscriptions. With my friend, you shall be friend. And with my enemy, you shall be enemy. So in the 14th century and around the time, 14th century BC, around the time that David was alive, these were the kind of agreements and treaties and vows that people were making in friendship, in allegiances to one another. So David is copying this. He, is, he, is, he is exploring how this looks with God. He is giving a pledge of loyalty to God. Okay, so you may say, all right, that, that helps to kind of explain what's going on in this psalm. Maybe at an intellectual level, but there's still something that we have to wrestle with. I mean, the words that David uses here are strong words. They're visceral words. 
And especially when we consider the teaching of Jesus. He says, love your enemies. Do not hate them. It seems in direct contradiction to what David is saying here. So how do we understand that? Well, I want to nuance what David is saying here. I want to talk about what he means by hate. What does he mean by hate? Because it's interesting, at the very beginning of the passage in verse 19, when he talks about, when he begins off with what he's going to say, he actually says, Oh God, that you would slay the wicked. And what's interesting about this is that even though he expresses hatred for God's enemies, he doesn't take that into his own hands. He limits himself. And that doesn't surprise me because of the counsel of Scripture, which says over and over again, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So David, in his own way, is is saying, I will not tolerate evil, but I will also not perpetrate evil by becoming the judge myself. He does not take justice into his own hands, but he trusts God with it. So hate, at the very least, does not mean taking matters into his own hands. And a way that we could define how David is talking about this is is like this. You could say that David has an extreme intolerance for evil, but trusts God for the results. An extreme intolerance, a loathing, a disgust for evil and the people who perpetrate it. But he does not take justice into his own hands. We can talk about it this way. This is a can of olives. Uh, I hate olives. I do not like them. I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like them at all. My wife, actually, Megan, shares the same distaste. She, uh, you know, she was in Italy during her college career and thought, you know what, if there's going to be any good olives in this world, it's got to be in Italy. And she went through the stands in the marketplace, tried an olive at every single one of them, and still hates them. I share that disgust for olives. But here's the thing. If I see you eating olives, I'm not going to come up to you and smack that olive in your hand and stomp on it. My hatred for olives doesn't go that far, nor would I go on an olive-killing crusade. I wouldn't destroy every olive I saw. I'll let God sort out you olive lovers. (laughs) So you see the point that what David is exploring here in terms of his hate is that it's not going to be a part of his life. Just like I don't want olives on my salad. I'm staying as far away from olives as I can. David is expressing that in terms of the evil he sees in his world. In terms of those people who oppose God. He's saying, I'm not going to have a part in those relationships. But he trusts God. So, when we say, when we see Jesus' teachings of love your enemies, there's room for that in what David is saying. But there is no tolerance for evil. Well, that leads us to consider, what do we do? How do we take anything from this? What do we walk away with? I think the first thing I want you to consider is this. God is not a teddy bear. God is not a teddy bear. He is not the candy dispenser in the sky. He is not the doddering grandfather who gives you bits of benign advice. God is not a teddy bear. He is a mama bear. 
He is a mama bear. And you know with mama bears, there's room for hugs with mama bear if you're a baby bear. But otherwise, you don't cross mama bear. You don't cross mama bear. I'm indebted to C.S. Lewis for exploring this a little bit. Because he recognized this about God and and the the character of God and, and understanding that there's an edge to who he is. In his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a character named Aslan who is very clear for C.S. Lewis as a representation of God. How many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, a lot of you. Okay, so you're probably aware of where I'm going. But for those of you who are not, there's a particular quote that I, about God that I love, about Aslan, actually. In the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there's a number of, of kids who stumble into this fantasy land of Narnia. And they just learn about Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And so Lucy, one of these children, learns about Aslan, and she's talking to another character. Says, oh, it's a lion. Well, is Aslan a safe person? And this other character, Mrs. Beaver, says, safe? Oh, Aslan's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Sometimes I think we want God to be safe. We want him to be benign. When we talk about God as love, we want him to be a safe kind of love. But we sell God short when that's all we think of him. We sell his justice short, his righteousness. We sell him short. Because God is not a teddy bear. He's a mama bear. And that's good news for us. That's good news for our world when it comes to the things that are wrong with it. That's the first thing I think we should walk away from, is learning a little bit more about God from this song. Here's the other thing. I think that we should let ourselves be shocked. I think that we should let ourselves be jolted by the language that David uses here. Because we are so cynical and jaded, I think, in our age. The more and more that we expose ourselves to our culture, to the entertainment to the media, the news, the more that we see that black and white, good and evil becomes gray. And we get jaded by all of it. We, we hear the latest scandal, the latest failings of a leader, and more and more it just becomes the new normal. And worse, it becomes the new normal in our own lives. I had a friend who talked about... Um, sex and violence in, in movies and things like that. And she would, she would say something like this. She would say, well, would you eat a brownie if it had just a little bit of poop in it? I know, it seems amusing, right? Would you eat a brownie if it had a little bit of poop in it? But I think she wasn't strong enough. I think she should have said, would you eat a brownie if it had a little bit of rat poison in it? And I'm not talking about movies and media only. I'm talking about our whole lives. We are surrounded in very seemingly minuscule ways by things that are like rat poison to us. Things that we expose ourselves to, that we become tolerant of, that really in the end are destructive to our lives and to the people around us. And this psalm can help us to jolt, to jolt us out of that and to consider actually what are the things that God hates What are those life-destroying influences 
whether it's relationships or practices, whatever it is, that we have grown tolerant of. Relationship is a two-way street. And I love what Paul, or David is doing here in that he is exploring this. He is, he is not just saying, God, you love me, you care about me, but he is saying, God, I pledge my loyalty to you. I want to explore what you care about. And the reality is, is if you want a deeper spirituality, if you want to know God more, if you want to know Mama Bear, then you have to explore this part of who God is. You have to consider, what are the things that God hates? Just as much as you would with your spouse, your friend, your child, what are the things that God hates? We need to be resensitized to that, not desensitized. We need to be sensitized to what God hates. That's challenging for us. It's a different kind of ask, isn't it? Normally we talk about God's love and we consider that aspect of it. But we are being asked to shake ourselves, to jolt ourselves out of complacency. Naturally, where David the psalmist leads us in the passage is towards a place of reflection and self-reflection and introspection. Pastor Ellis is going to take us there next week. He's going to explore explore that with us. But I think we can prepare ourselves for that. I think we could do some homework. So I'm going to actually challenge you to do some homework this week. To take 30 minutes of one day, just 30 minutes, and to sit down. And actually, I encourage you to pull out your phone right now or, or write this down as a note somewhere. Because what I want you to do in that 30 minutes is just to read a chapter of the Bible. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of his time. And what's special about Matthew chapter 23 is you get to see what riles up Jesus. You get to see what makes him angry. And as you're reading Matthew chapter 23, I want you to just ask one question. Does the things that make Jesus angry make me angry? angry. I don't want you to force it. I don't want you to say yes right away. I just want you to be honest about it. I want you to be open. Just lay it out. Let the Holy Spirit explore that with you. Let it be something that you reflect on. Do the things that rile Jesus up, rile me up. And then Whatever may be the case, I hope the Holy Spirit explores that with you. That the Holy Spirit sensitizes you to the things of Jesus, to the concerns that God has in our world. And let that be a start for how to understand and how to walk away from this passage. Let that be your own kind of loyalty pledge. Man, there is so much to say about this passage. There is so much more that we could explore, we could talk about justice. We could talk about God as judge. We could talk about mercy and grace and where that falls in here. But I wonder if this is all we need to do right now. This is all we need to walk away with is aligning ourselves to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, 
we are challenged this morning. I pray that indeed we are jolted, that we are shocked by these words. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to look inside of ourselves. Help us to consider how we are aligned to you, how we are aligned to what you care about. Lord, in our lives, sometimes the grime accumulates in our souls. And this week, Lord, I pray that as we take time to open ourselves to you, Lord, that it would be like a washing and a cleansing of us. Lord, the things that are destructive to our lives, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, wash them away. So, Lord, as we reflect on Scripture, as we reflect on your character, your love for this world, the way that you will not tolerate the things that, that destroy life in our lives, Lord, help us to grow closer to you in that. Thank you, Lord, that you are a mama bear. You care for us so well. Help us to rest in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.